Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. The calendar may say fall has arrived, but we know that already happened a couple of weeks ago. It's episode 182 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham, and if you thought last week's show was jam-packed, this week going to be even more so, because you know Star Trek Discovery premiered over this past weekend. Yep, going to give you our spoiler-filled review of the first two episodes, or the two-part premiere, if you want to call it that. It's going to be coming up on This Week in Geektainment. Guest-wise, our fall TV coverage continues once again with two guests this week. First, we're going to be talking to Kobe Bell of The Gifted on Fox, who plays Jace Turner of Sentinel Services. We'll talk to him about that brand-new X-Men show. Also, Chad Michael Collins will join us to talk about a new show called Extinct. It's on BYU TV. And I will also give you my quick spoiler-free thoughts of that show right after the interview. So jam-packed, time to get right to it. Let's review some comics. It's what we're reading next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Warren Simons, the editor-in-chief of Valiant Comics, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to grab that tablet, long box, or laptop. Whatever you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading. And I had my plan all laid out. The books that I was going to review this week... And then I get an email from Valiant saying, would you like to get an advanced look at Eternity Number 1? Yes, I would, because I love the Divinity series, of course, written by Matt Kent. Trevor Harrison does the art. This time on Eternity Number 1, it's Ryan Wynn on the inks and David Barron on the colors. Now, the book doesn't come out until October the 25th, but after reviewing the Zero issue not too long ago, I just had to talk about this one because we've got Abram Adams and Mishka, they're living a happy life in Russia. Their child has been born at this point. If you read Divinity Number 0, you know that that was coming. So this, though, turns really, really quickly. What we get to see in this book is we actually get to see the unknown, which is where Divinity ended up getting his powers in the first place. And we get to see a whole bunch of new characters. And I don't want to spoil anything about this, and so I'm really going to try my best to tell you what happens in this book without spoiling anything. There is something that happens in the unknown that is that significantly shakes the foundation of their lives. Something that is very, very important has changed, and now there's only one hope to kind of right the world of the unknown without something completely taking it over. Now, this affects... Abram Adams and Mishka in a very, very big way. And everything happens really, really fast in this book, too, by the way. When you get to see the unknown, they dive right into it. I mean, you get new character after new character after new character, but it doesn't feel forced in. There's a very deliberate pace in this book. And when things go awry, everything just seems to happen so fast that as a reader, you're going, whoa, I can't believe how much they're getting into this one issue, and it doesn't even feel rushed. It actually feels so deliberate and so, I don't know if I want to say if if easy is the right word, but I guess Matt Kent's been working in this world for so long, it almost seems flawless at this point how he put this issue together. And then you get these climactic points where if you were a fan of the Divinity series, 
you were all in. I mean, I was literally sitting in a chair on the edge of my seat. Usually that's a cliche. I was literally sitting on the edge of my seat while I was reading this book. And maybe it's because I kind of saw where they were going with it. And maybe you will too when you finally get to read this next month. I kind of saw where it was going, but that didn't even matter to me. But I didn't know how they were going to get there and what the end result would be. And when I got to the end of this issue and saw what I kind of thought what I was going to see, it still shocked me. And it shocked me to the point where I'm thinking about these characters and I'm thinking, okay, how is this going to end? What is the climactic point for this? And the anxiety that Abram Adams and Mishka must feel re-entering that world of the unknown. So, And then there's a whole other element to this that, again, I won't spoil for you, that really adds a second piece, and you've got to wonder, okay, how's that going to factor in at some point? So this is just one of the things that Matt Kent has been doing in the world of Valiant for a long time. He brings you multiple obstacles, but then finds a way to tie everything together, especially once you start getting into the meat of the arc. He finds a way to tie it together, and then you're just on edge the entire time, and you're just, and I just enjoyed every second of reading this book, and that's why I was looking forward to it so much after I had reviewed Divinity Number Zeros, because I knew that this was kind of the quality story that I was going to get. This is a poll for me. Hopefully you go out next month and grab this book. Tell your local shop right now, as a matter of fact, that you want to pre-order because this is something, especially if you're a fan of the Divinity series, that you have to have. There's another series that I never really jumped on the first arc, but when I saw the, I've seen little bits and pieces of it here and there, so I decided to jump in on the Infinite Loop number one, Nothing But The Truth from IDW, and that's by, now, first of all, before I even tell you who this book is by, if you've listened to this show before, you know how terrible I am with names and pronouncing names. So first of all, I'm going to apologize to half the creative team on this book because for me trying to pronounce these names is like picturing a flaming dumpster being hit by a freight train. So I have no idea how this is going to go. I will apologize in advance and do the the best I can. Okay, here we go. Infinite Loop number one, Nothing But The Truth, written by Pierrick Colinet. Elsa Charitier also does the writing. Danielle Di Nicciolo does the art. Sarah Stern, thank you, Sarah, does the colors. And Ed Dukeshire does the letters. And what I love about this book, it is it is a perfect jumping on point for new readers. So if you haven't read Infinite Loop like I haven't, admittedly, then you're good here. There's no way, you won't really lose anything by not reading that first arc, but you're probably going to want to after you get done reading this book, as a matter of fact. It follows a character named Teddy who saves what is called human anomalies. Right now, anomalies are being put in camps. They're kind of being pushed away from the world. They're not being killed anymore, but they're being pushed away. And, you know, anytime you just put a group of people in a camp, it just doesn't work out very well, and it's often terrible. So this group that she is part of rallies against that and tries to save anomalies from ever going to the camps in the first place. Now, you know that she has a wife, and the complications with that do come in. So if you've read Infinite Loop before, they do get into that story. If you haven't, though, you still get a sense of that relationship and what that dynamic is like, because we get a couple of flashbacks here. You get a basis for what the relationship is. So even as a new reader, you don't feel lost and you don't feel like you're on the outside. Like this, like can happen in second arc sometimes where you think it's a jumping on point, but it's really not because you don't know the relationships between the characters, but infinite loop gives you that 
in this second arc. And I think that that was really, really smart because as a new reader, not only did I enjoy the book, I was not lost by it at all. So very, very good job by everyone involved there. Now, you get to see Teddy is very, very headstrong, and I love that. This is one of the reasons that I loved Joyride from Boom Studios so much, was that it had a very headstrong female lead character, but also had a fun side. This reminded me of that book so much, and if you've heard my reviews, I reviewed that book several times on the show because I loved it so much. So that's about as high praise as I can give, is that I love the character of Teddy to that point as well. So as you go out through the story, you see Teddy venture out to try and save another anomaly. And once she gets to where she's going, which she doesn't take backup, by the way, which turns out to be kind of hilarious and stupid at the same time, I guess is the best way I could put it. She finds herself in a little bit of trouble and she kind of gets herself into a situation in, in a backwards way. That's not her problem. And she even admittedly says it's not her problem, but it's that suffering. And one of the things that this book does so well is the callbacks. And it's in this same issue. I'm not talking about something that happened in the first arc that's a callback in the second arc that fans will go, oh, yeah, I remember that happening. This book has a couple of different callbacks from this very issue. And I every time I was reading these, I'm like, that is so smart. You're making it come full circle within one issue. You're giving the readers something to call back on that they just read and enjoyed. And I love that because not only did it take me right back to that part, it just made me nod my head and smile going, yep, that's why they did that. So that was a brilliant piece of writing and everything that was put together. And before I go any further on the writing, the art by D. Nicuolo is absolutely gorgeous. I think I said that on Twitter at one point, and I started a discussion about that on Twitter. The art in this book is just so phenomenal. I feel like I'm watching a high-end animated series when I'm reading this book. It is that good, and the storytelling is that good. The action sequences are fantastic when they do happen. You've got a couple of good stories going on at the same time, which I love, and there's some political undertones here, and I know that you know, you could get to the point where you go, all right, I'm, I'm sick of the political undertones in comics or just in general in the world, yada, yada, yada. It's not thrown at you. It is put in a way so nicely tucked into this book that the political undertones are so meaningful in this story. And that is one of the things that drew me to this book in the first place, that everything's just wound together and put together so, so well This is a pull for me, and I'm actually mad at myself for not jumping on Infinite Loop in the first volume. So I'm starting with nothing but the truth. I'm going to go back and read the first volume just for fun because I've already fallen in love with these characters after one issue. And I'm going to go back and find out more and continue reading this one at the same time. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. A double dose of This Week in Geek Tamer, starting with my spoiler-filled review of Star Trek Discovery here on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is writer Mike Johnson, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
It's something we haven't seen in a long, long time. A premiere of a new Star Trek series, and that happened this past weekend on CBS and CBS All Access. Time for my spoiler-filled review of Star Trek Discovery, and I can't stress that enough. Many, many spoilers and some big ones coming up, not just from the episode that premiered on CBS, but the second part of the premiere that premiered on CBS All Access as well. If you don't know, this story is set 10 years before the original Star Trek series, and it follows the crew of the USS Shenzhou in this first episode with Lieutenant Commander Michael Berman, who's played by Sonequa Martin-Green, and the captain of the crew is Captain Giorgio, who's played by Michelle Yeoh. Now, one thing I will say is that, just my initial thoughts, the episode that premiered on CBS, which I actually watched on CBS at the time, at the end I felt it was very ho-hum. It was like, yeah, I liked it, but I wasn't blown away by it. So I'm thinking, you know, this is the impression that you want to get people to subscribe to CBS All Access, where, of course, you had to watch the second show. Now, you do get a seven-day free trial, so I said, okay, let's go ahead, do that, see how the second episode was. And that's where the hook came in. But before I get into all of that, let's start back at the first episode. We get to see a lot with the relationship between Lieutenant Commander Burnham and Captain George Yu. We see them on a planet together at first, and then you see them on the bridge and with the rest of the crew. And what we don't really get, though, beyond that is a lot of character building for some other characters. I mean, there's Lieutenant Saru, who's played by Doug Jones, who's the science officer on the ship and i gotta say that i think other than lieutenant commander burnham's character i think lieutenant saru was my favorite character the science officer it's almost like he played the spock role well without having it to be vulcan it was very and there was a very touching scene where he talked about his people and what happened to them at one point that was just devastating so uh, if anybody else on the crew I felt for Lieutenant Saru throughout these first couple of episodes, other than, of course, Lieutenant Commander Burnham. But everybody else just seemed kind of there. And I know that in Star Trek, that kind of can happen, where everybody else is just kind of there, and there's not really a whole lot of importance that's brought up to the rest of the crew. But when things started happening and everything just started going wrong, it was hard to feel for anybody else on that crew. And there was one particular point where and I know that as sci-fi fans and as Star Trek fans, maybe you're deep into everything that's said and all the commands that are fired off. But I got to tell you, there were times where they were firing off commands and and talking in jargon, and I'm going, okay, yeah, I'm I'm a little lost here, and, and I'm not a dumb person. I don't consider myself a stupid person, but at the same time, I felt myself drifting because there was just a little bit too much jargon there. There wasn't enough. I just think anytime there's a lot of talk, like shop talk, you tend to lose the average viewer. And I think that that's something that Star Trek really, really needs to hold on to. And I mean, maybe it's just white noise. I don't know, because you kind of get the gist once everything starts happening. And that was the other thing with this episode, too, is it seemed to take so long for something to actually happen. Unless you were following the Klingon story in Takuvma, who was actually trying to reunite the houses of the Klingons, all 24 houses. And I got to say, Chris Obi did a fantastic job in these first two episodes as Takuvma. And we will get back to Takuvma here a little bit later on for obvious reasons for anybody that watched the show. But that first episode just seemed to drag on so much. 
And then you see the mutiny that happens between Lieutenant Commander Burnham and the captain because the Klingon vessel's there and she's already killed one of the Klingon warriors. And now she wants them to fire on the Klingon vessel first and they won't. And she tries to make it happen anyway and ends up getting herself thrown in the brig. So basically the last 10 minutes of this first episode was where all the meat was for me. But at the same time, it seemed like in that first, let's call it 30 to 40 minutes, I don't feel like I got enough to make me really, really pay attention to be locked into it. But then that last 10 minutes grabs me and I go, okay, this is what I was waiting for, finally. And we don't even get the battle, really, until that second episode that was on CBS All Access. And then that, it, it almost like it's like that second episode should have happened halfway through the first episode. I feel like you could have cut out a lot of stuff that was unnecessary in that first episode and got right to the point. Like the scene where the battle goes goes through and you're not really sure how things are going to turn up. And then they figure out what they're going to do to attack the Klingon vessel. I feel like you could have started there almost. Or you could have started at the point where she gets thrown in the brig. Maybe that's where you end the first episode or the first part of the premiere. It just seemed like you could have got to it faster and given viewers a little bit of the battle in the beginning in that episode that was on CBS because I just feel like you're taking a huge chance of losing viewers that go, eh, that first part was kind of boring. I'm not sure I want to sign up for CBS All Access, even if it's for free, to watch that second part of the episode because if you didn't, you really, really missed out and it's something that you're going to want to go back and watch because not only did they give you the epic battle between the Klingons and the Federation ships, but you also get a lot more about the Klingon story. And you actually get to to see Takuvma try to unite the houses of the Klingons. And that doesn't necessarily go well for all of the houses anyway. And he really builds himself up as what you think at the time anyway is going to be a main villain throughout the series. And then you have to see how Lieutenant Commander Burnham deals with the fact that she just committed mutiny on her own ship and against her crew and against the captain that took her in because we got to see a little bit of her backstory as well where she was a human that was raised on Vulcan and went through all the Vulcan training. And James Frain, how many times have I said on this show? Probably quite a few. I love James Frain and what he did with the Sara character and playing the Vulcan. I mean, bravo to him. I think if anybody did other than, of course, Sinequa Martin-Green, if anybody was true to their character... It was James Frain. I think he did Star Trek fans very, very proud and brought that Vulcan culture right out there. And it it just worked so much for me. And the interactions between him and Burnham were just amazing, especially in that second part of the premiere, in that episode where she's in the brig. And he kind of gives her the kick in the butt that she needs to start being herself again. So now let's get to the big points of the second episode, and that is the deaths that actually happened. One thing that did not surprise me at all was the death of Captain Giorgio, because I saw that coming very, very early on, even in the first few minutes that she was a goner. Don't ask me how I knew, but then here's the thing I did not expect, was that in that same battle, Burnham ends up killing Takuma, who you really, really think is going to be your long-term villain for this show, and is just not. And I know we have Vox, who is going to be playing a pivotal, pivotal role going forward as well. I get that. But at the same time, that was your guy. I mean, you built him up so much. 
It's like in chess. When you sacrifice your queen to get the other player's queen, it just didn't seem to make a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, one captain's death is one thing. But then what you would do is if you kill the captain of the Federation ship, then you give a major foil for the Federation to deal with and for Burnham to deal with when when you know the Klingons killed her parents. We find that out earlier on as well. So think about it. Now a Klingon kills her captain, her friend, maybe even in, in certain circumstances mentor. Where does that put her, especially with what she's dealing in, because she gets punished for her crimes at the end of this first episode. So she would have to deal with that knowing that he was still out there. I just feel like that would have added a little bit more depth to the story. I also think that at times the writing was a little sloppy in this show, but I mean, there were certain characters that delivered it well. I thought Doug Jones did a great job with Lieutenant Saru. And of course, Sonequa Martin-Green, probably my favorite character on the show. She was very strong, very emotional when she needed to be. I actually cared about everything that happened to her and Michael Burnham and that character. It was She did just such an amazing job. There were others though, and there were times where it just, it just didn't feel right. It just didn't feel natural. And my overall thoughts on this show are, I really wanted to be blown away by this. I really wanted to be super impressed. And I can't say I was super impressed. And this is where the problem lies, especially with CBS and the problem that they're going to have going forward. Is that I, I've you know I've seen other reviews, I've I've looked at Twitter, and I know that some people think this is a fantastic show, and, and that kind of stuff is subjective for shows anyway. But here's the problem: this isn't a show that's gonna be on every week on CBS. This is a show where you have to sh- subscribe to CBS All Access, $5.99 or $9.99 per month to be able to get this show. And I know what you're saying. You're, you're saying, okay, well, you already do that with Netflix and Amazon Video and stuff like that. This is the only really new show. I mean, they've got a couple of others that they've had. This is the only real new show, original programming show that they have because a lot of the other CBS programming is available on things like Hulu and stuff like that, at least in real time anyway. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to go for just one program. And this is how you build the foundation. And the second part of the premiere blew me away. I was very impressed by that. The first is where I get a little nervous. So is this going to be one of those things where you're going to have your great episodes, but you're going to have some clunkers in there? And is that something that you're willing to plop down your hard-earned money for. That's the biggest question of this show, is that did you see enough in these initial episodes to warrant paying that money to watch the show going forward? I'm a little bit on the fence about that right now. I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do. I am very interested in what's going to be happening going forward, but I've definitely got my caution ball blit. So for now, I can't give a rating again because this is a premiere episode. I don't want to rate anything until the end of the season, but my caution bulb is lit for Star Trek Discovery. I did like some things about it, but I do think it had some problems as well. This Week in Geek Tainment continues next. My interview with the star of Extinct on BYU TV. It's Chad Michael Collins next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Ray Chase, the voice of Noctis in Final Fantasy XV, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. we got a couple of exciting things actually coming up. We have Extinct coming out on BYU TV on October the 1st, and then October the 3rd, we have Sniper's Ultimate Kill, the next chapter in the Sniper franchise. We just happen to have the lead guy in both, yeah, Ezra and Sergeant Brandon Beckett himself, Chad Michael Collins. Chad, what's up, man? Hey, how are you, James? 
Very, very good. Now, Extinct is kind of your first real entry into the science fiction realm. So are you a sci-fi fan, and what have you been some of your favorites over the years? Uh, a tremendous sci-fi fan. Huge influence on me growing up, and, and not just TV, but film and, and books and comic books and, and you name it. I was into sci-fi across the board. So, yeah, excited about Extinct. It's my first chance to really take a character... Uh, on a long journey in the sci-fi stuff. I've been able to dink and dunk on, you know, Once Upon a Time and stuff like this, which which kind of counts, but this is probably the, the, the first true hardcore sci-fi project I've been a part of, yeah. Now, we know that when you reawaken in the first episode of Extinct that you're definitely not alone, so what can you kind of tell us about the team dynamic in the first episode? Yeah, so we're, we're just to set it up, we're, we're 400 years in the future. Extinct takes us uh, into kind of a post-apocalyptic Earth. Uh, aliens have come down and wiped out the human race. And, and right off the bat, to start this series, we, we discover that uh, there's a benevolent alien race. So alien technology, advanced civilization from who knows where, comes down and starts reconstituting a very select handful of, of humans that lived 400 years ago. And I am apparently chief among them. And me and two others kind of are weaved together in the water with these these magical creatures, you know, that kind of take organics and stuff from the environment and air and just kind of put us back together. We, they, we, we call ourselves the Reborns. And, yeah, I found myself along, amongst two other Reborns. And that's Victoria Atkins, she plays Cena, and York Fryer, who plays Abram. Um, and it's great. We're strangers. We don't know why us. And so we're basically just trying to survive and get our bearings, and, and we're wondering why we've got our memories from 400 years ago still intact, yet we're clearly in a post-apocalyptic landscape. So we, we have to kind of struggle and sort and figure it out together, and some people hold their cards close to their vest, and some people are just very open and friendly, like Abram, uh, played by York. So, yeah, it's fun. It's a fun dynamic to explore, you know, strangers in a strange place and all that. Absolutely. You mentioned one name that should be very familiar to our listeners, Victoria Atkin. We had her on the show to talk about Assassin's Creed not too long ago. So we know her skills as a voice actress, but we also know her skills as a motion capture actress. So what was it like kind of working right. with her, especially in the action scenes and stuff? Uh, it was great. And, and she's, you know, really well known for the Assassin's Creed work, as as you said, but a lovely co-star. Um, she she plays Fina, who's the bit of the edgy rebel. You know, she's got a past as a, as a hacker, got in trouble with the government. Um, she's committed past crimes, and so she, her story, uh, 400 years in the future, kind of follows, you know, that path to redemption type type story. So she's looking to make good on on her failings in the past and stuff like that. But we're we're great friends to this day. Victoria is such a sweetheart, and I think she brings such a fun edge and charm you know I'm, I'm kind of the de facto leader of the group but when like the butt kicking goes down she certainly holds her own and, and could perhaps edge me out she, she's more or less my muscle as we move forward in the series that sounds about right we love her she's great yes yes she is so speaking of her work in video games and voice acting and stuff like that what about you man is there any video game or animated series that you'd kind of like to be a voice actor in at some point you know, I've been able to to do a couple projects just through some friends. I um, I've got a video game coming out. It's an interactive video game. I can't say much about it until it hits. Uh, very, it's all it's very cool. Like almost like a choose your own adventure type video game where every choice you make impacts the rest of the story. Nice. We were, yeah, we were working off like a seven hundred page script. It was just insane. But I um, my first 
you know, uh, motion capture, face capture sort of thing. My first adventure actually came doing uh, the trailer for the expansion for one of the Star Star Wars uh, massive multiplayer online role-playing games, the big universe there. They did an expansion a couple of years ago called, gosh, was it Knights of the Old Republic? Yep, that's uh, the one. Yep. Gosh, I can't remember. But it, it involved like a story between two twins vying for their father's approval, affection, you know, this sort of thing. And I played one of the twins in, in a very twisty, turny, five-minute trailer in that. So I got to wave around some Nerf swords that doubled later as lightsabers when everything was said and done. So, I mean, how cool is that? So, yeah, it was, it was really, really fun, and I, I welcome the opportunity to do more. I mean, you t- you talk about Star Wars, man. I-, I look at you and I see you in Extinct, and I'm getting this Obi Wan Kenobi vibe. You know, they're doing that reboot movie. I'm thinking uh, maybe Chad Michael Collins. You know, to to do the Star Wars universe would be a dream, and, and you know, I'm a patient man. We've got all the film franchises blowing up, and we're going to get one a year for the foreseeable future. But they're going to go into television eventually. They're going to have to. Mm-hmm. And I'm biding my time, man. There's a there's a million characters in the Star Wars universe, and Wherever the path of least resistance is, or where the force is strong, that's where I will I will hopefully end up one day. There you go. There you go. Now going back yeah. to extinct. In the first episode, your character talks about something that he hopes still exists in the world here 400 years later. So if you woke up after 400 years, other than finding your loved ones and stuff like that, what's the first thing that you want to do or look for? Oh boy, that's a good question. Uh, first thing I want to do or look for. I got to be honest. I. I I'm really, really, really partial to my pickup truck. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, it, you know, walking across the desert and walking over the mountains and walking through the forest, that's fine and all, but come on, we're in the future. Let's get some kind of rad, you know, space rover looking, you know, four by four pickup truck. I I, I, I would live out of my truck if, if I was, was really hard pressed. So I would, I would want the truck. Yeah, we're not putting one of those marathon mile stickers on the back of that truck. No, no thanks. We're 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 good. Been there, done that. Let's get on. Let's get on four wheels. <laughs> now, I mean, you're also continuing your work on the sniper movie sequels, and it, it seems like there's a really serious threat at play this time, man. You're going back to Columbia, so without spoiling anything, how bad are we talking here? Yeah, this this newest uh, installment, uh, Sniper Ultimate Kill, out um, October third. It, we're really proud of it. It's super duper fun. I mean, not only do we have Tom Berenger, who's the original sniper, and and Billy Zane, who's played in the franchise with us. Those those two guys starred in the original movie '93. They both kind of appeared throughout the seventh total films, but never together again since the original. We got them both, you know, for this film. So it's really really fun to have the OG sniper gang representing with us. And yeah, the the, the movie takes us down to Columbia. Well, we shot in Colombia, doubling as Colombia, which is always fun. And we it's more of an urban warfare type film, and we've never really played with that too much. We're, we're trying to take down a drug lord, but we find out he's got a hired gun of his own who's got his hands on some super advanced sniper weapon technology that we've never seen. So the, the, the hot stakes are the highest they've ever been, and he is just kind of a ruthless, really trained up, kind of equal in terms of uh, Brandon Beckett and his kind of sniper skill set. So it's fun. You talk about uh, training, as a matter of fact. You've been playing Sergeant Brandon Beckett for a while. I'm sure you had to go through some sort of training when you started doing these movies. So what was kind of the coolest or most interesting part of that training? Uh, you know, we've never we've never done a, a, a – I, I have a friend 
named David Denman, who's a wonderful actor. I know that when he did the movie 13 Hours, uh, the Benghazi movie for Michael Bay, they sent him off for like a two-and-a-half-week boot camp. And unfortunately, <laughs> we, we've never been able to do that. But we do get a day in advance to kind of fill it out with a weapons guy, and our military tech advisors are always great. They're usually former former servicemen or, or women who are on set with us the entire time. So, you know, I grew up in upstate New York. I, it's kind of like a rite of passage in seventh or eighth grade. Everybody gets, like, their gun safety training, mm-hmm. <laughs> whether you're going to be, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the great hunter or not. I mean, it's just the kind of way of life there. So I've, I've grown up around guns and shotguns and rifles and everything, so I'm very, very comfortable with it. And this is just about getting the technical aspects right. So I, you don't get much training in advance. You just kind of like stick to to the military advisor's hip like glue, and that I find that's the best thing for me to get everything right from proper loading to proper holding to poses, how to clear corners, this sort of stuff. These guys are experts at this sort of stuff, so I just always pick their brains, and that's that's the training I get. But across four movies, I, I feel like I can do it proficiently enough to be believable. I hope. Yeah, man, that's definitely a good call. Stick to the advisors, and mm-hmm. you're good to go. The guys have been doing it their mm-hmm. entire lives. Exactly. Now, going back to Extinct for a minute, we do see some flashbacks with your character in, in the first episode, and you know, you know, fans have had a lot to say about flashbacks and other shows and stuff like that. But there's really a lot of emotional moments in these flashbacks. So, without spoiling anything, how much are these flashbacks going to play a role in the story going forward this season, and how important are they really? You know, I I loved the show Lost, and I know Lost. It had a lot of viewers lost like towards the end there, but I loved it. I'm a huge J.J. Abrams fan going back to Alias and all the stuff he does now, of course. But I thought one of my favorite parts of Lost was the flashbacks. And they just they filled in so much, you know, for the, for the characters and the backstories and stuff. So we, we do that a lot in this show, and I think we capture it in a really great, great way. And it, it will factor in time to time, and, and there's so many question marks these random people seemingly thrown together 400 years in the future, you kind of wonder why us, you kind of wonder why here, just in the same way you wondered why are, why are we all trapped in the silent? Why were we on the plane together at the same time before it went down and lost? So it, it does. And, and it really informs the audience as to who these characters really are, why they make the decisions they do, how they act the way they do in the future. And it's, you know, as an actor, it's, so fun to play a previous version of yourself. It's like you get to play two or three different roles, the past life, the, the present life, and that sort of stuff. So I love it. I think it's a really fun element that adds a lot to the show. We, we always enjoy shooting those. We'll get ready to see a lot of this guy because Extinct premieres on BYU TV on October the 1st. Of course, you can find that on your Roku device. You can find it online as well if you're looking for it and you can't find it on your local cable provider. Also, Sniper Ultimate Kill going to be available on October the 3rd on Blu-ray, DVD, and digital HD. Chad Michael Collins, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thanks, James. A pleasure. I hope we get to do it again. That was Chad Michael Collins talking to me about Extinct on BYU TV, which premieres October the 1st. With those episodes, if you don't have BYU TV on your satellite or cable provider, you can get it in app form and watch Extinct on there. Just a quick thoughts on the show. I get to see the pilot episode of the show, so my spoiler-free thoughts on that are it's a very charming show, and for a show that's being done on a network like BYU TV, which is relatively unknown at this point, to the general public, it was very, very well done. I thought it was shot well. I thought the story 
actually had some good bite to it. It had a lot of charm. It reminded me of Timeless in a certain way of the charm of the characters and the dynamic of the characters that were together. It reminded me a lot of Timeless. And not just because you've got one white guy, one white woman, and one African-American guy. That's not why I'm saying that. What I'm saying is, is that it, it was that same charm. It was that dynamic that just fit except for a little bit of an edge like he was talking about with Victoria Atkins' character. And there's more secrets there as well. Not that Timeless didn't have its secrets as well, but there's definitely more secrets amongst this group. And then you get that whole lost thing thrown in there. He mentioned lost earlier as well. You do get kind of a lost vibe with a couple of things that happen in this show. And I also get kind of a little bit of a Maze Runner vibe too as well. So very, very interesting show. Can't wait to see more from Extinct. I will give you my spoiler filled thoughts at some point. Keep watching on our Facebook page for that. Facebook.com slash down and nerdy. Might do a video on that or something. Give you my spoiler filled thoughts on Extinct. Up next, a boatload of nerd news to get to, so we'll do that here on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Jonathan Delmore, tabletop games designer for IDW's Atari Line of Games, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Time to find out why retro gaming might not be so retro after all, because it's time for nerd news. And the biggest story this week, I think anyway, was the Atari box details coming out from Atari. And I say details in air quotes as much as you can do on a podcast because there really wasn't that much that was given away. So we know the first thing that popped out to me is that it's going to cost at least $250. Hold on, we'll talk about that in a second. It's going to run on a Linux operating system, which I think is very interesting. going to be running a custom AMD processor. And fans who donate to the Indiegogo campaign that's going to be coming up are going to get special designs and pricing and stuff like that. And this will be available, by the way, next spring. I think you're going to need the special pricing anyway because when I saw $250 to $300 price tag, I'm thinking, so you're putting this right up there with the PS4 Xbox One, even the Xbox One X, Nintendo Switch. So you're really in that category. Did anyone think when they found out that an Atari box was coming, even though it was going to have some high-end features, that you would even approach that price point? I mean, ballpark in my head, I was thinking 80 to 100 bucks. Now, we still don't know exactly what this is going to be and what kind of functions it's going to have. You kind of figure it's going to have some sort of emulator in it, right? To play some of these retro games but i mean is this going to be a steam machine kind of thing what kind of exclusive games is this going to have because that's always kind of the kicker for how you decide on a console right nintendo's got plenty of exclusives so does playstation so does xbox so even if they're timed exclusives at least they are exclusive so you got to wonder what atari is going to be bringing to the table here and what's going to make you want to pay that 250 to $300 price tag? I mean, sure, I'm sure it's going to be an all-in-one entertainment unit just like the other consoles are, though. You know, something that's going to have your, your Hulu and Netflix options, you know, places where you can grab stuff from your cloud and play stuff in your multi- multimedia system and work with your network, all of those things. I'm sure it will do those things, but at the same time, I kind of feel like Atari is missing the boat here. I mean, you've got the the whole controversy with the SNES Classic, which is actually becoming available now. Part of that was you saw the fever that was around that, and even the NES Classic before. Consumers and gamers want these retro games so badly that they will go to great lengths to get it, for one, and for two, complain about it when they're unable to get it and don't feel like enough of them 
have been put out. So you see that trending so much. And Atari could easily come out and say, okay, here's our system. Here's what games are going to be available for it. And maybe you throw almost all the games on there. I don't know what, what you would want to do. But you could say, here's what's available for it. Here's a smaller price point and run with it because nostalgia is big right now and, and kind of always is. So I don't know that if you're Atari and you've been out of the game for this long, you want to jump in with both feet and try and compete in the console wars, especially with Nintendo's gaining legs with the Switch. Think about all the things we're hearing about coming out for the Switch. I mean, something like Doom and Wolfenstein coming out for Switch, that was a big announcement not too long ago. So Nintendo's starting to kick down that door a little bit that Sony and Microsoft have slammed in their face over the years, and rightfully so, by the way. So if you're Xbox, do you really want to kind of try and jump in and compete in that world, or you want to try and put out a knockdown, drag-out retro console that's going to sell really well, maybe dip your toe in that water a little bit, and then see what you want to do, because I'm just not sure how many more games can be made, and maybe this will be... Maybe they are just going to be the haven for indie gaming and just kind of that friendly place for that, and that's what they're going to want to do. Nothing wrong with that. There's a ton of great indie games out there, so we can only wait and see what Atari has in store, and hopefully they bring something really, really big to the table for that price point. Back in the video game realm, things not very good for NetherRealm Studios after what happened with Injustice 2 this week. In case you weren't playing the game or you were unaware... First of all, if you haven't installed that new update yet, don't install the update because some users that did install the new patch for Injustice 2 got all of their gear for all of their characters deleted, gone. And when I say all gear for all characters, I mean all your hard-earned gear for all of your characters. Now, maybe as of you hearing this, there's a fix as of the recording of this podcast there has been no fix other than NetherRealm coming out and saying, you know, reboot your game after the update, and that should fix the problem. But it hasn't happened for everybody. I mean, if you look at the Reddit threads, it doesn't work for everybody. It's not everybody's stuff is fixed. Stuff that you gained after September 25th is apparently still a problem. So I know that NetherRealm is going to be on this, but I'm just, this opens this conversation again for me. And, and with all DLCs and stuff that come out for these games, and I get why you want it right now. The anticipation for these games coming out is so, so great. And Injustice 2 is definitely one of them. I mean, there's so many good things to love about this game. I mean, even without this happening, this has been a very, very successful release for NetherRealm. And fans have enjoyed the game to the point where you get this mad when your gear is gone. But here's the problem. I've always been the proponent of, unless you absolutely positively have to buy this game now, I'm one of those people that will wait for a Game of the Year edition. That way I get all my DLCs. Any kinks that there were were probably worked out by the time I get my Game of the Year edition. And usually the price point is a little bit lower, or it's the same and you get more stuff out of it. Does this make you not want to buy games right away? Because I appreciate that developers are giving you these patches to fix stuff that might not have been able to be completely 100% foolproof before the release of the game. I appreciate that developers stay on those sort of things. But when something like this happens, and I realize that this is a rarity. It's not like this happens all the time, but this is a huge, 
huge deal. You lose all your gear that you worked hard for. Now you're assuming that you're going to get it all back and that everything's going to be fine and dandy in the end. But this is a big deal. And when you make gamers angry, it's hard to unring that bell. So is this going to be one of those things where it's going to keep you from wanting to buy games right away or waiting for Game of the Year editions or waiting for kinks to be worked out before you buy a game? I think that that's perfectly reasonable given the circumstances. I know that this will get fixed. I know that NetherRealm has a very, very good reputation of being good to its customers and being good to gamers. So I don't necessarily knock them for this. I do think it's a big deal, and I'm glad that they jumped on it right away. But to me, this just opens up the conversation of, do you have to grab games on the release date? We do have a release date for something that, i got to be honest, I never would have expected, but I'm kind of excited for, and that's Teen Titans Go. Yes, that Teen Titans Go is going to be getting a big screen movie adaptation and a summer release. That's right, July 27th, 2018, according to Warner Brothers, is when this movie is going to be coming out. So Teen Titans Go coming to the big screen, and now this is going to be an original story. It's expected to involve the regular cast. I got to tell you, this is a huge step, not just for Cartoon Network, but for Warner Brothers Animation having enough faith in Teen Titans Go to not only release a feature film, but to put it in the crowded summer movie lineup. And to me, that just tells you how popular that this show is. When I was talking to the cast at San Diego Comic-Con this past year, there was so much excitement being built up around the second Night Begins to Shine TV movie that they had success with. And just so much chatter about that. And the first one was so, so good, or the first, that first episode. And it's not like they haven't done stuff like this before on Cartoon Network as movies, but to make that jump to the big screen, I think says a lot. And, and bravo to the cast and everyone involved and the writers for Teen Titans Go for making this move to the big screen. Do I think that this is going to make, like, Lego movie money? I mean... Maybe not, but at the same time, why not? Why can't this make Lego Movie money? Kids already love this series. I mean, it's it's got plenty for adults, too, let me tell you, because I've watched Teen Titans Go with my son many times, and there's plenty of jokes for adults. My wife and I laugh watching Teen Titans Go all the time, so why can't this be one of those movies that just works transitioning from TV to the big screen in animation? And you know what? There should be more animated movies in theaters. I think that this is something that kind of gets lost on the shuffle because of how well they, well they do on television and how well they do on Blu-ray and DVD release. Why not roll the dice and do this? I mean, we're going to get a Spider-Man live and we're going to get a Spider-Man animated movie coming up here pretty soon. This just makes sense to me. And with the success of the Lego movies, why not do this? And it seems like the perfect time for it. One show that I loved that I'm still sad is gone after all these years is Chuck. Of course, a series with Zachary Levi. But speaking of Zachary, he just sat down with Entertainment Weekly talking about this and says that the project for the Chuck movie is not quite dead yet. When he was talking to Entertainment Weekly, he says he's talked to the cast members and they'd be willing to come back and do a Chuck movie. But, yep, of course, as you would say, money is the issue. Not just that, but Warner Brothers still retains the rights for Chuck. So he says, you know, I'd have to hire a writer to get a script. I need a script to get the rights or to get the movie made. We need money to get the, to get the script and we need money to get the rights. And it just seems like everybody wants to do this. 
but it might not be in the cards. Now, first of all, I think to myself, okay, if we can bring back Psych, which I also love, we can bring back Chuck. And I think USA Network would actually be a good home for a Chuck movie. So if, if USA Network's doing Psych, why not have Chuck movie as well? And I know that Chuck had a huge fan following. The fans saved the show multiple times. The sponsorship by Subway also brought in money that saved the show. So I think we bring back that magic again. If Zachary Levi just happens to be listening to this, Zachary, here's my idea. Take it or leave it. You could get another sponsor to get the money for this. We saw Big Mike and his addiction to Subway on the series before. The word Mike jumps out at me. What about Jersey Mike's? Another sub shop? You've got the name Mike right in there. Maybe Big Mike decided to retire from the Buy More and get a Jersey Mike's franchise or something like that. Or this is the new thing that he's doing to kind of keep trim and you know keep up his energy for his retirement or something like that and going fishing and all these things. You get another sponsor like Jersey Mike's. And if Jersey Mike's listening, this is something you want to jump on board on, guys, because Chuck fans are very, very loyal and very, very loud. I mean, when I went to the Psych movie reunion panel at San Diego Comic-Con 2017, not only was Ballroom 20 packed with rabid Psych fans, but the energy around this whole project was so great that you find out they're going to be making multiple movies. Everybody's psyched about this. No pun Well, yeah, pun intended. Everybody wants this. And it just seems like a no-brainer to me. It's the same thing. And Zachary Levi is involved in the psych movie, so he should know the excitement around this and why now is the time to try and do this. Fans want this to happen, so why not? Let's make this happen. Let's figure out a way to get this thing done. And I'm sure Warner Brothers, as far as rights are concerned, I'm sure Warner Brothers wouldn't mind if there's enough of a following, and this has just as much to do with social media as anything else. If anything has enough of a following and enough chatter... It's going to want to get done, and the fans want this done right now. That's going to do it for Nerd News this week. Up next, we're going to be talking about the new X-Men series on Fox, The Gifted with a member of Sentinel Services, Kobe Bell, up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey, this is Cullen Bunn, the writer of Micronauts, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. There's no question one of our most anticipated shows of the fall season has been The Gifted on Fox, which we'll be able to see Monday, October the 2nd. At 9 p.m., and we just happen to have a member of Sentinel Services himself. It's Kobe Bell. Kobe, how you doing, man? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Doing very well. As a matter of fact, Kobe, I mean, we've seen a lot of X-Men shows, both live-action and animated, kind of brought to TV over the years. What do you think kind of sets the gifted apart from the others? Uh, well, this this is more of a um, sort of a ground-level view of what's going on. You know, the, 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 the characters on this show, even the mutants, aren't set up to be, you know, superheroes running around in, in costumes. These are just real people who happen to be mutants and who just happen to be put into a situation where they have to fight to survive. Now, your character, Jace Turner, is a member of Sentinel Services, and any X-Men fan knows exactly what that means. So, without kind of spoiling anything, how much can you tell us about how ruthless this group's actually going to be? Pretty ruthless, man. Pretty ruthless. But the, the cool thing about the way the show is set up is that there's like this gray area with my character Jace in that he doesn't um he doesn't particularly take any joy out of what he has to do. He's just he has this mission. You know, he had he had a, a horrible thing happen in his past that sort of set him on this path. 
to be in the technical services. And, you know, so he's going to do whatever he has to do to get the job done. But he's definitely uncomfortable with a lot of the things he has to do. And as this season keeps going, I'm finding out he gets more and more uncomfortable because <laughs> things get dark. And, and again, we don't want to spoil anything here, but I, that's one of the things that I actually loved about the pilot was that there's a real side of right uh, issue in the show that I really love. So how much are we going to see that sort of play out as the season goes on, or ha- or has it already for you? Oh, absolutely. No, that, that, that's what I'm saying. That's the cool thing about the way Matt, Nix, and the rest of the writers have uh, set this show up is that there's such a gray area, you know? As far as my character is concerned, he thinks he's the hero here. You know, mm-hmm. he thinks he's he's doing he's doing the right thing, and sometimes he has to do wrong in order to do the to to do the right thing. But if that's the price he has to pay, you know, and so yeah, there's not so much just black and white. You know, we're the good guys, you're the bad guys. I mean, there definitely are going to be some straight up bad guys that come in, but Jace isn't necessarily one of them. He's the antagonist of the show. He's the bad guy, but he's not necessarily a bad guy. Oh, definitely. And now we're, you were talking about, you used the word real earlier, and, and that's kind of what stands out to me. And it's no secret that we've seen this in the trailer, that your character is going to be going after the Strucker family and their children. So your character's a dad, and you're a dad yourself, actually. So did that kind of help you, in, especially in the early going, with the struggles that Jace faced, uh, especially in that first episode? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, the, the, stuff, the stuff in regards to the Strucker family and also with his own family. Yeah, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of these scenes... You know, all you really have to do is think about your own kids and your own family, and there's, you know, then there's very little acting required. Now, you got a chance to interact with fans actually recently. As a matter of fact, I saw the video that you posted on Instagram not too long ago from the floor at San Diego Comic Con. What was that experience like, and kind of getting the experience of the excitement of the fans as well? That was a trip, man. It was a trip because I've, you know, I've never gone to Comic Con. I've never been a part of a project that is sort of a, you know, a Comic Con type of thing. So to go there for the first time on this kind of a project with, you know, all the power of Marvel <laughs> oh, yeah. behind it, um, it was crazy, man. It was crazy, but crazy in a good way, in a beautiful way. And I'm just trying to enjoy enjoy this whole ride because, it's you know, it's fun. It's fun. It's, you know, it's, this is the kind of project that I've wanted to be a part of for a long time, this sort of genre. Yeah, how much did you actually know about yeah, the world no, before you got before you got involved with this? Well, I've always been a fan of, you know, growing up, I always had all the toys. I had I saw all the movies. I, I was into the X-Men cartoon. I've never been a comic book reader. My son is now, actually, so I'm kind of getting into some of the stuff that he's into just so we can oh, very talk nice. about it. You know, I take him, to the, take, him to the, yeah, take him to the comic book store like a couple times a month. It's actually hard to keep him, <laughs> keep him in comic books because he reads them so much. But yeah, but I've always been into this kind of stuff, always. So to be a part of this is sort of surreal. Well, what's kind of one of the cool things about your character is even though he's part of Sentinel Services, it's he's not like steeped in any comics really. So was that kind of cool for you and kind of took the pressure off? You're like, okay, I can make this guy my own and I can I can put my stamp on this character. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, yeah, he's a, he's a blank slate. So yeah, I, I kind of feel that freedom and I think the writers do as well. We, they, we can kind of go wherever we want to go with them. And I'm really interested. I mean, just as a fan, I'm interested to see where it goes. Now, one of the mutants that you're going to be chasing in this group is Blink, who's played by the wonderful Jamie Chung. Now, she has the power 
to open portals. So if you had to get away just for a day and you could open a portal to anywhere, where would it be? Dude, having having Blink's power right now would be so perfect for me because I'm working in Atlanta and my wife and kids are out here in California. Oh, so man. if I could just if I could just portal back and forth, you know, do a take on set and then portal back to my daughter's volleyball game and then portal back to set and then portal back and do the dishes, you know what I mean? That that would be that would be Wow, you would actually that you're you're a good husband, man. You would portal to do the dishes. I'm sure the wife's gonna be happy to hear that one. <laughs> yeah. I just realized that you asked me if I can go anywhere and I and I said I want to go do the dishes. Wow. Um, you know how yeah, you know, you know, you know how happy you made a whole bunch of ladies right now. They're gonna be looking for the next Kobe <laughs> Bell. That's what they're gonna be looking for. No man, but I you know I'm, I'm trying my best to you know because I know you know I have four kids and I know that the time that I have with them, um, you know my older ones are already in high school, and I know how quickly that's coming for my younger ones. So I just kind of want to be here as much as I can. So when I'm working out of town, I just try to get home as much as I can. Absolutely. And getting back to the show for a second, you talked about the word real earlier. Now let's talk about another word, and that's fear, because there's a lot of fear involved when it comes to the mutants and the gifted, and that's a theme we've actually seen with the X-Men in the past as well. So how would you react if you found out that mutant powers really did exist? I'd be like, I'd be looking into other things. I'd be like, well, does Santa Claus really exist? I'm like, what's going on here? <laughs> um, <laughs> no, I, I think, you know what? I, I mean, you know, down deep, I think everyone kind of wishes they had some sort of superpower, you know? Which, so which one would you really, choose, though? Yeah, that's a tough one, man. I mean, we are, we already been over the the, the, the dishwashing portal. <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, you know, you, it would be nice to have a combo, but yeah, I mean, any of them will be cool. Any of them. See, man, you're not greedy. You're like, yeah, I'll take whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. you're, you're going to complain about having some sort of superpower? Come on. Right. And, and, and well, I mean, that's what, well, one of the, the age long questions about superpowers is I mean, does it make your life easier or, or does it not? Is it actually a hindrance in a certain way? Where do you kind of fall on that? I I think it I think it depends on the individual, you know. It's just like, you know, someone can be put into a position of power, and they don't handle it well, and they're a jerk about it, and everyone's like, "Oh, that power, you know, made that guy a jerk." But my, I'm kind of like, no, nah, he was probably a jerk all along. <laughs> um, he just he just never had he was never in a position to be a jerk and get away with it. So I think it just depends on who you are at the core of who you are yeah just a jerk on a more powerful scale now yeah 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 we got you know we got we got some powerful jerks uh happening right now so we're well, yep. that, but. yeah there's plenty of that <laughs> plenty there's plenty to go around well you you definitely don't have that in this cast though i mean you have such an amazing and talented cast on the show from top to bottom so without spoiling anything is there a scene that you've shot with a particular member of the cast or a character that you're really looking forward to fans getting a chance to see you know, I'm, there's, there's been a lot, man. We've, we've covered a lot of ground in just, you know, we're only on our seventh episode. So there's been a lot of cool stuff, a lot, a lot, of, a lot of cool stuff. I can say this. I can say that Emma Dumont's character, Polaris, is a huge pain in Jace's ass. We had a, a lot of fun scenes together. 
I mean, what's that like? How is the uh, dynamic of the cast off the screen been? Because I know, especially for a lot of Fox shows that we talk about, there's just such a camaraderie with all the cast members. What is that like? I mean, do you guys get together after shootings over, stuff like that? Are you texting back and forth constantly already? Actually, yeah, man. Yeah, I feel really lucky. And it's such a big cast, and to have us all sort of come together as a family pretty quickly uh, is, is really cool, you know, because I've, you know, I've, I've done... I've been doing this for a while. I know that's not always the case. I've been very lucky on the shows that I've been on to where it's, it's always been good vibes. But I, well, mostly good vibes. I'll say it's been mostly good vibes. But I know that it only takes one stinker to kind of ruin the the fun. Now, we have, we have a great group of people, and they're all really dedicated to bringing this thing to life. And they all kind of don't want to let the fans down. You know, we, we, all, we all really respect the Marvel thing, and we know that the fans are loyal, and we want to... We want to give them what it is that they want. Let's go back and talk about the writers for a second, because we, when you talk about such a large cast like this, it's got to be so difficult to bring everybody together and kind of give everybody their piece of the story and their piece of the pie. So in the experience you've had so far, how, how is that going? Do you feel like everybody's getting a chance to get their story told? Is that what fans can look forward to? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, it's a, it is a big cast, but it's also a big world that they've set up. You know, so it kind of takes a large cast to to really bring this world to life and and give everything that it needs. So, you know, and most of us are kind of coming from the place where, you know, we just want what's best for the show. So nobody's, you know, greedy about, oh, give me more, give me more. It's more just like, no, let my character serve the story in the best way. And that'll be that. And, you know, there's going to be episodes where, one character will be carrying all the weight and then there'll be another episode where you you only have a few scenes. But that's just, you know, it's just the nature of the beast. Absolutely. Now, I talk a lot about on this show about how shows like The Gifted and other shows aren't necessarily strictly for comic book fans. We actually touched on that a little bit earlier. So for anyone that's never picked up an X-Men comic before in their life, what would you say is something that would draw them to this show the most? Well, this is, I mean, at the core, it's a show about a family, just a suburban family that had this nice little quiet life and the life just gets flipped upside down um, in a day, in, you know, in one, one incident. And they have to decide, are they going to turn themselves in or are they going to go on the, on, the, on the run? And they go on the run. And so now they're trying to survive in this world that's extremely hostile towards mutants, which two of their kids turn out to be. And not to mention that the, the father, just that two days prior, he prosecuted mutants for a living. Mm-hmm. So he has to do a 180 and, and, and run for it. And it's, just a, yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good family drama. And it just happens to be set in the world of the X-Men universe. Well, we're looking forward to seeing this universe expand greatly. The Gifted premieres on Fox Monday, October the 2nd at 9 p.m. Eastern, right after Lucifer, actually. It's Kobe Bell. Plays Jace Turner on The Gifted. Thanks so much for joining us this week. No, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure, man. I'm going to tell you right now, guys, you are going to be so pleasantly surprised when you do see The Gifted. It is so, so good. It's the one of the only shows, as far as new shows are concerned, that really blew me away when I saw it for the first time. And you are going to love it this Monday, right after Lucifer at 9 o'clock Eastern, this coming Monday, October the 2nd. That's going to do for this week's Down and Nerdy Podcast. Thanks to Kobe Bell for joining me this week. Also, thanks to Chad Michael Collins for joining me this week to talk about Extinct, which is going to be on BYU TV starting on Sunday, October the 1st. And you can stream on BYU TV 
on your Roku devices and other devices as well. Go to BYU TV to find out more information on that or extinct.tv as well. Next week, we'll have the cast of The Flash and Arrow on the show to get you ready for the big CW premieres and a heck of a lot more as well. You can always find us online and get all the info you need on our show, downandnerdypodcast.com, on social media, at downandnerdy757, on Twitter, also facebook.com slash downandnerdy, at downandnerdy757, on Instagram as well. And remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.